For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. It would be good for us maybe to recap a little bit. Last week, we talked about the collision that takes place between our wisdom and God's wisdom. And so it would be good for us to sort of think through this uh, a little bit before we jump right into our passage. You know, when you uh, think about human wisdom in a number of situations, for example, someone does something wrong to me, you know, human wisdom dictates that we may want to retaliate that we want to get back at that person. A lot of times we find ourselves thinking of different ways, fantasizing about how we can say something that would just really put them down. Or maybe things may escalate where we are plotting on how we could, you know, um, ruin their reputation. In other cases, we may just decide that we're going to refuse to retaliate. And so our whole thought is that we want to try to avoid conflict. And yet when we turn to God's wisdom, we see that that's just the opposite of human wisdom. That God calls on us to forgive one another and to love those who mistreat us. Totally the opposite of what our culture would say. Totally the opposite of what human wisdom would dictate. And yet... That's the way um, that God put forward and also lived out. We see that Jesus, though we were enemies, decided that he would forgive us and show us incredible love, even though we didn't deserve it. You know, you think about a need arising in your life, maybe financial. You think to yourself, I'm broke. And uh, I don't know what to do about that. So wisdom would dictate that maybe I should go and take that from someone else. Maybe I have an opportunity at work to be able to lift a few bills off the top and nobody would even know. Or maybe I'm in charge of, you know, some accounts where I'm paying bills for my roommates and I justify to myself, well, I'll just use this now, but eventually I'll pay it back. And so... Human wisdom dictates that we would just take money whenever we need um, more. Or, you know, we might decide, well, I'm just going to work as hard as I can and just earn this money. And you see people in our culture, there's this desire, this drive to have more money. And often they'll work themselves completely to the ground, often at the expense of their family. And they're doing this because that's what our culture tells us we should be doing. That if you you need money, that you should go after it. And really, that's the only thing that matters. Or, you know, human wisdom would say we should just reduce our expenses, just live simply. You see that in our culture today, that there's sort of a backlash against the materialism of our culture where people are actually moving towards simple living But it's not on the basis of generosity and stewardship where we can use the excess money that we have, that we're not wasting on frivolous things in order to generously give to God's purposes and his people. Whereas, you know, God's wisdom would say, give generously and trust God to provide for your needs. Not that you shouldn't work hard 
or that you shouldn't take advantage of opportunities, but the worries that we often have about our money drives us to a place where we decide we are going to take care of our needs instead of working as hard as we can and trusting that God is going to provide for us. And often when we carve out a portion of our money, our expenses, to give to God's purposes, that actually changes our thinking about our finances. We no longer see ourselves as owners of our money and our resources and time, but instead we start to see ourselves as stewards, people whom God has given a responsibility that we're to discharge uh, either through our money or our time. You know, we may feel like I'm lonely right now. You know, I, don't, I am having a hard time getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or maybe I just, you know, don't have very many friends. And so human wisdom would tell us, you should go out there and get high, have fun, go get drunk, party, you know, um, and just forget about it. Or, you know, human wisdom would say, why don't you go out and get laid? That would feel good. That would sort of uh, help you to feel disconnected from the pain that you're experiencing from loneliness. Or maybe we'll tell ourselves, you should just buy something nice for yourself. You know, that always feels good. That euphoria that you feel whenever you open up that wrapper of that new device or you buy a new pair of shoes and you decide, you know what, let me throw the old ones into that box. I'm wearing these new ones out of the store. You know, that, that excitement that you have from a new purchase. Or, you know, maybe there's a, a desire, a quest to go out and find somebody who's going to love me and meet my needs. And that may not be in the form of, you know, a significant other. Maybe it's that we just want to find a friend who's going to meet these needs, these longings that we have. And yet, what does God say? In his wisdom, he tells us, stop worrying about yourself and love others. That's the key to uh, breaking out of this feeling. That's very counterintuitive to human wisdom and human thinking. And so, I guess we're at the point now where we're asking ourselves, how do we obtain God's wisdom? How, how do we understand what God has to say about us so that we can live life in a way that's pleasing to him and that will be fulfilling. Well, that's really the topic of our passage that God reveals in this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 through 16, that the spirit actually acts as God's conduit for his wisdom. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 through 8. Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the first thing we want to address is Paul says, we speak a message of wisdom among those who are mature. Remember, in the context of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about God's wisdom 
and equates that with the cross of Christ, that humans, through their wisdom, through, you know, human reason, can never actually infer the cross of Christ, that God has hidden that from us in order to confound human pretensions and arrogance. And so he says, though, that there are those who are mature and that he speaks a message of wisdom to those who are mature. But it raises this question, is he talking about something other than the cross? Is he, is he switching subjects immediately? Well, we get some clues here from the passage. He says, no, we speak God's secret wisdom. And this word in Greek is the Greek word mysterion, where we get the word mystery. And so he says that this wisdom, God hid that uh, really from ages past. And so uh, God revealed it at a certain time among men. And so there's this secret wisdom that God has been withholding for ages past. And uh, he points out that he has withheld it from the rulers of this age. Now, the rulers of this age probably refer to the spiritual forces of darkness, God's enemy and his followers. You know, some commentators actually argue that this probably refers to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Palestine at the time when Jesus was crucified, as well as the Jewish leaders who took a hand in crucifying Christ. And yet, I think there's good reason to think that that's not what he's referring to here, in part because if you look at it, he's using the present tense to describe that these rulers of this age are coming to nothing. This wouldn't make any sense if he was talking about Pontius Pilate because Paul was writing this in the mid-50s AD. Pontius Pilate's um, appointment as governor, procurator of Palestine, ended in AD 36. So who are these individuals then who are coming to nothing? It's probably referring to God's enemy and those who rebelled with him. And so God purposely withheld this secret wisdom, the message of the cross, not only from human beings to confound our arrogance and our pride, but also as a strategy to confuse God's enemy. You know, when you look at the Old Testament text, you'll notice that God lays out two pictures of this anointed one figure. You have the suffering servant in Isaiah and also in passages like Psalm 22. But then you also have this other picture of God's anointed one, the chosen one who will come, who God said will come as an anointed king, that he's going to come in this hostile takeover and that ultimately he's going to seize control of this earth and rule forever. So there was some confusion, apparently, between uh, trying to link these two figures together because in the Old Testament, relevant information was actually missing connecting them. And so um, it's very clear that 
from this passage, these rulers of this age did not understand it, referring to God's wisdom, the mystery, because God withheld that information. And so I think it raises this question, though, because, you know, when you look at Satan, you read through the Gospels, and he actually took a hand in crucifying Jesus. For example, in John 13, verse 1, it says that Satan put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So why would God's enemy take a hand in his own demise? Jesus, again, in John 12, verse 31 and 32, claims that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he says, the ruler of this age will be cast out. So why would Satan play into God's hand? The answer is staring us right in our face. He had no clue that this was going to happen. You know, one of the things that we notice about Satan and when we do a study of him, his career, that Satan is actually trapped in what you might call paradigmatic thinking. You know, paradigmatic thinking is where you start to see the world through a certain lens or grid. And, you know, when Jesus appeared, he knew that this was the son of God, but he automatically assumed that Jesus would come in this hostile takeover and that he would be a reigning king to overthrow Satan's kingdom. And so Satan believed that God is this tyrant, that he just wants to take over, that he just wants to control us, that he wants to take away our freedom. And so when he noticed that Jesus started to lose followers, he took advantage of that and actually used that as an opportunity to, to crucify him. And I can imagine that as Jesus was nailed on the cross and Satan thought that he finally had gained victory over God, that when Jesus uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Satan probably started to put the pieces together where he was probably like, okay, where do I, where do I remember that from? That's familiar. Wait a second. These band of evildoers surround me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing. Oh my gosh. He's quoting Psalm 22 verse 1. This Old, Old Testament passage which predicts the coming of God's anointed one, the suffering servant. And so, uh, far from destroying Jesus and overcoming God, Satan actually played right into God's hand. He didn't show that God was a tyrant. He actually demonstrated that God was actually a loving and merciful God. And so, um, really what Paul is talking about here is the basic message of Christ. And so, is he talking about something other than the cross? No. What he's suggesting is that the cross, though it's simple enough for even a child to comprehend, it's deep enough for us to fathom for all of eternity. Turns out we're going to be pondering this event for the rest of eternity, unpacking all of the implications, marveling at God's wisdom 
in executing this incredible plan throughout history. Well, he also says that there are those who are mature. And, you know, a lot of Bible commentators, a lot of scholars have just simply resisted the idea that these mature refer to those who are spiritually mature, as opposed to those whom Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, as those who are spiritual infants in Christ. They don't like that distinction between those who are spiritually mature and people who are immature believers in Christ, those who have just started a relationship with him. What they like to say is that those who are mature simply refer to those who have the spirit of God, that is, any true believer. The reason why they resist this is because they don't like the idea that there are some believers who, even though they have genuine faith in Christ, are still falling into a pattern of moral failure. Because if you're a follower of Christ, then you have made Jesus Lord of your life. And they'll often use rhetoric such as, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. In other words, if you're falling into sin, if you're having problems, then you're probably not a true believer in Christ because those things are incompatible. And yet, reality and scripture would say otherwise, okay? (laughs) A lot of us are coming from a background where we've got tons of baggage, done a lot of things in our lives, we've partied a lot, We've had a lot of experiences. And the thought that we would just enter a relationship with God and then completely change the moment we receive God's spirit, that's just unreasonable. That doesn't fit with my experience. You know, I found myself struggling with a lot of relational patterns, with a lot of temptation, falling back into the same patterns that I was doing back out when I, before I met Christ, when I was in the world. And yet, incrementally, I started to see God change my life and transform me. And, you know, that's, that's exactly, I think, what Paul's talking about here is that those who are mature are not those who are sinless or who don't have any more problems. It's those who have developed a deep relationship with God, but that there are those who are brand new Christians who are going to struggle. So if you're here tonight and you're a new believer in Christ. Maybe you're having problems. Maybe you're falling back into the same patterns before you met Christ and you feel really guilty about that. You know, one of the things that God wants you to know is that he's forgiven you for that and that uh, he wants to work change in your life incrementally. It's going to take a long time, especially if you have, uh, you know, taken your life through the ringer To think that God is just going to fix that in, you know, no time flat. I think that's an unreasonable expectation. In some cases, it takes years and even decades for him to undo the damage we've done to ourselves. He says in verse 9, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It seems like he's paraphrasing Isaiah 64, verse 4. And again, it reiterates that God has this plan that he's been working all along and that nobody ever saw it coming. 
And he did that specifically because he wanted to throw down human arrogance and human pride. He says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So God uses the spirit to reveal his wisdom to us. He reveals um, his truth to us by the Holy Spirit. You know, when we come into a relationship with God, the spirit comes into our lives and starts to illuminate our minds such that we can actually see the world from a different perspective that we actually start to now see a different dimension, the spiritual dimension, as opposed to the time before we, we knew Christ where we simply saw things from a totally natural perspective. You know, I remember prior to meeting Christ, I would try to read the Bible. And I would understand the text, right? I understood what it meant. But I remember the experience I had after receiving Christ, meeting him, and then opening up the Bible. And passages that I had read before, it's almost like the words were just jumping off the page. And I felt like God was just speaking directly to me. There were even times where I'd sit through a teaching like this, and I remember sitting in the audience as the teacher was speaking about some issue, and I felt like that individual, the teacher, was speaking directly to me. I was suspicious that somebody had, like, talked to him. <laughs> like, dude, you know, I was getting paranoid. Like, who's, who's going around gossiping about my problems? Why is he <laughs> describing this issue in my life up there? And, um, of course, he had no knowledge of that. But God was speaking through his spirit, directing the, the spoken word of God to me. And you'll experience that once you have the spirit of God in your life. And he says that the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. In other words, the spirit of God has access to God's thoughts his intentions, his desires, such that the connection we have through the Spirit gives us a direct line into God's thinking. What an incredible privilege that we get to actually understand and hear God's own thoughts, the creator of the universe communicating directly to us about his thinking. He says, For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So he's building upon his argument. He's like, you know, who really knows your thoughts and your intentions? Of course, you know, people like to speculate all the time. I love it when people are, you know, I'm talking to someone and they say, I know what you're going to say next. And I'm like, oh, really? Why don't you tell me? And they're like, you were going to say this. And I'm like, no. It's completely wrong, right? Um, and so there's no way for us to access a person's thoughts or intentions in the same way. There's no way for us to know God unless the spirit of God reveals his intentions to us. You know, contrary to popular belief, God is not some sort of entity or spiritual force out there. He's not like a guiding principle 
He's more than a higher power in our lives. He's actually a personal being. So in the same way that you can't access somebody's thoughts just by looking at them and interacting with them, in the same way, we cannot access God's thoughts and intentions unless he reveals it to us through his spirit. He goes on in verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. Um, you know, we actually have to receive the spirit. I alluded to this earlier, but the Bible teaches that we are born in a state of separation from God. We've done things that have offended him. We've done things that render us guilty, but God in his love and mercy through Jesus Christ has offered us forgiveness. And the moment that we receive Jesus's forgiveness into our lives, God says that in addition to that, he actually sends us his Holy Spirit to come and indwell our lives. That God actually makes his dwelling place within us, which is an amazing thought. But what that does for us is a number of things. It, it illuminates our thinking and it helps us to see God's truth from a new light. Um, but it's important that we understand that it's something that we have to receive. It's not something that God is going to force upon us. You know, God respects our free will. And so he requires that we humbly turn to him and receive the spirit of God uh, in order to receive his wisdom. He says in verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was taking these spiritual thoughts that he was having and he was combining them with spiritual words and speaking those to the Corinthian people that he was uh, proclaiming the message of Christ to. And so whenever we open up the Bible, we're actually encountering God's truth, God's spiritual thoughts, in the form of spiritual words. He says in verse 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he can't even understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he says the man without the spirit, which in other translations says the natural man, but in Greek it's the word sukikos, which means, um, suke means soul or life. And so um, this is the person without or the natural person, the one without the spirit. So he's shifting gears here and giving us another point of contrast. He says that they do not accept the things that come from God for two reasons. First of all, they are foolishness to him. Yeah, you know, when out, you know, in our world today, people hear the Bible taught, or they hear the teachings of God, and they automatically compare what they hear from God with what they think. You know, each one of us has a worldview that we've constructed before we meet Christ. And so in our natural state, our state apart from God, you know, what we like to do is we like to say, how does what God says fit in with what I think. 
And if it doesn't fit very well, then we just simply discard it. And so the natural person puts his or herself in a position of judgment over what God has to say, either accepting or rejecting it based on whether or not it fits with what we want. And so as a result, it's foolishness to the natural person when they hear, you know, spiritual thoughts. And secondly, he points out that the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned or appraised. In other words, you need God's spirit in order to understand spiritual truths. Now, we're not saying here that, you know, once you receive God's spirit, that at that moment you become a way better Bible interpreter. Turns out that takes hard work, okay, and discipline. But as you read God's truth, God, through his spirit, is able to give us um, an understanding of the implications of his love for us, the implications for what his truth has in our lives. And so that's what he means when he says that they're spiritually discerned, is that the spirit allows us to accurately appraise what God says, to see things correctly. You know, another corollary passage to this this, uh, is Ephesians 1, verse 17 through 19, where he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Notice he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. And he states earlier that it's the spirit who allows us to experience this opening of the eyes of our hearts. You know, if you're a follower of Christ and you've been following God for any time, you will have had this kind of experience. I know I have where I've had this so-called opening of the eyes of my heart where, you know, as I'm sitting there spending time with God and reflecting on all the great things he's done in my life, um, God's spirit helps me to see the implications of God's love for me in my life. And um, it's a very powerful thing, very moving. A lot of times when I have these kinds of experiences where God gives me this opening of the eyes of my heart, uh, typically I'm moved to tears. That God would, would uh, first of all, condescend himself to relate to me, and secondly, that he would go to such an extent such as the cross, to forgive me for all the things I've done wrong. And this fits exactly with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, where he says that the Spirit reveals to us all that God has given us. That's one of the things that the Spirit does, is it helps us to grasp God's love for us in a deeper way. Look at this in Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 19. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, which is a big word for believers in Christ, not somebody special, 
to grasp how wide, how long, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Amazing the way he describes God's love. He calls it a love that surpasses knowledge. Not that we can't understand it on a basic level, but that there will never be a time where we will be able to fully wrap our minds around all that God has done for us in Christ. And the Spirit actually, in time, reveals incrementally how much God loves us so that we can see how long, how wide, how deep um, is the love of God for us in Christ. And so he says finally in verse 15 and 16, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For he who has known the mind of the Lord, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so uh, he says that the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, that you know, once the spirit enters your life, that uh, you see the world differently and you're able to see reality clearly. You know, Paul in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, actually gives us sort of the mechanics for how God accomplishes this in our life. He tells us, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And um, so he says, that first of all, if we want to experience this mental transformation through God's spirit, we need to resist conformity to this world. Um, this Greek word, suske matizo, is actually where, the, where we get the word, I'm not trying to impress you with my Greek knowledge here. This is actually where we get the word schematize. And so it's interesting because Essentially what he's saying is don't, and it's in the passive imperative, which means don't allow yourself to be schematized or pressed into a mold by the world and its values. In other words, it's not like you just fall into a pattern of thinking along the lines of what our world says, but that actually the, the culture that we live in, the world that we live in is actually pressing in on us trying to get us to conform to what it has to say. And so Paul says that we need to resist this. Um, I remember very early on just the, the power of conformity. I remember uh, I was in grade school, and I remember showing up to the very first day of school, and I had a new pair of jeans. And um, when I walked into class, I, I thought I was going to look, you know, pretty hip or whatever. I thought it was the newest style of jeans, but uh, apparently I didn't get the memo that somebody sent out, but cross-color jeans were in, in style. And um, I had like the old kind, the other kind, the nerd kind, right? And so... Um, I just, I remember walking through school and just, you know, having to endure people scoffing like, <laughs> just, you know, scoffing at my jeans. And I just was, you know, trying to walk as fast as I could from class to class. 
And um, so I, I remember going home that night and just being like, you know, mom, dad, I need to get a new pair of jeans. And they're like, well, what's wrong with those? Those are brand new. And I'm like, well, they're the nerd kind. Um, I need to get these new pair of jeans. They're called cross colors. And they're like, well, how much do they cost? I'm like, $80. And they're like, you ain't getting cross color jeans. <laughs> so I had to endure that for the rest of, you know, that school year. But, uh, you know, obviously that's silly, but, you know, we live in, in a culture and a time where if you don't conform to what our culture says, then there's a price to be paid. You know, in our world today, our culture tells us many different things. First of all, it says, you don't need God to tell you what you need to think. You know, it's up to you to decide what you think is right. And so we think to ourselves, does this fit in with what I want? And it raises the question, you know, are we going to reject what God has to say? Are we going to reject his recommendation for our, how our life should be lived? Even though he's the one who actually created us, knows how we should live our lives without destroying ourselves. Are we going to reject that? Or are we going to listen? You know, once the spirit enters our life, uh, we start to look at the world differently. We start to ask questions like, you know, what does God have to say about this? How does my worldview fit in with what God has to say instead of the other way around? You know, our culture will tell us, if you follow God, you're going to forfeit all the fun in your life. You know, I think God's enemy tries to paint a picture of following God as this drab, boring thing that you could think of thousands of other things that you could, you know, devote your life to other than this because it's going to be so drab. And yet, my experience is totally the opposite of that. Following God is not only exciting, it's challenging, and it's incredibly fulfilling. And so this is, I think, one of the really difficult things for us to wrap our minds around and actually to believe, because we like to, to envision God as this God who wants to hold back from us who doesn't want to give us good things. And so it drives us to want to go out and get those things for ourselves instead of relying on him. Or we might say, well, you know, personal preference determines what's right and wrong. And so whether it comes to our sexual preference, whether it comes to the way we live our lives, whatever it may be, I determine what's right and wrong for me. And if anybody tells me that I'm wrong, including God and what he has to say, then we're going to have some problems. And so we put ourselves in a position where we are in authority over God and what he has to say when we have adopted the world's view and its wisdom. And yet there are a number of reasons why I think this is faulty thinking. I think, first of all, it's kind of arrogant for us to think that in our limited experience and knowledge of the world, that we know what is right and wrong. You know, we, we often try to portray it as a very humble thing, like, well, it's just my personal preference whether this is right and wrong, and you can believe what you want to believe is right and wrong, and we can just coexist. 
And yet, we often find ourselves in a dilemma when somebody does something wrong to us and we feel violated, but they don't think that they've done anything wrong. What do you do in that situation? And so, um, really, we're calling for something objective, something that's overarching, not something that's relative, which we make right and wrong out to be. And so God gives us an alternative. He says, I have an objective external reference point by which you can live your lives and determine what is right and wrong. And that is based on my moral character. And so I think when we come to a point in our lives where we're ready to say, you know, living the way I've been living, according to what my culture says, it's not working out for me. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. It's, it's leading me toward a destructive path. Maybe it's time for you to admit that God's wisdom might actually be the thing you need. And, you know, it's true humility to admit that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've miscalculated this whole thing. And maybe I need to start thinking along the lines of what God says and accept his wisdom that he freely gives to us. But the requirement for that is that we first enter a relationship with him and receive what he wants to give us, the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so he also talks in Romans 12 too about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is the Greek word metamorpho, which means where we get the word metamorphosis from. And so it's this complete transformation that we experience. And so really there are two aspects to this mind transformation that God wants to do in our lives through the Holy Spirit. First of all, it requires us actively resisting conformity to the world and its values. And we're not talking about just like, you know, in superficial ways, like dressing really weird or listening to like underground music. Um, those are really super, you know, superficial things. What, what God is calling us to do is actually to resist the values that our culture says are of utmost importance and instead adopt God's values and what he says. But it also requires that we submit ourselves to God's transforming power. And we're going to learn more about that next week. But I like the way uh, that one author sort of renders this, which I think gives us a better maybe understanding of what Paul meant by this passage. He says, uh, don't be schematized according to the pattern of this world, but be metamorphosized, which is not even really a word, <laughs> by the renewing of your mind. And so um, if you want to learn more about this process of how God transforms our minds, you should join us next week as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Maybe uh, end our time turning to God. Yeah, we're thankful that you gave us a direct link into your thinking, into your intentions, and to your thoughts. And um, we uh, feel 
incredibly privileged to uh, have you indwell us and make your, your home in our lives. And um, I pray, Lord, that, um, you know, if there are any here tonight who don't actually have this connection with you through the Holy Spirit, that they would, um, you know, swallow their pride and um, allow you to come into their lives and that they would receive you and what your son has done on the cross. And um, we pray, too, for this uh, study on mental transformation. I pray that it would help yield some spiritual growth in our lives or at least point us in the direction of how we can grow with you spiritually. And um, thank you again for this book. Thank you for the wisdom that it it gives. And uh, we are excited to see uh, just how this is going to unfold in our lives. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.